Today, the, the message title is Removing Idols, but I think we could almost call this two different things. Removing idols, embracing conviction. Everyone say the word conviction in here this morning. And I don't know about you, we live in a world today that believes that if you serve Jesus Christ, that your faith is a crutch. You may have heard that. But what we talked about last week, to follow Christ, actually requires surrender, surrendering our way of life to live for him. And it's many people that find that aspect of faith challenging. So I wouldn't call it a faith or or, or a crutch at all. In fact, that level of discipline is so challenging for many that it causes Christians, believers, to be stuck in an infantile stage of faith. And so today I'm going to start out talking about something in Scripture that might feel hard to relate to. But we're going to go somewhere where it's, it's going to get a little warm in this room. Okay? So I want you to hang with me because where we're going is going to be a very challenging place. We're going to turn into the Old Testament today and we're going to be reading about a nation that had welcomed other religious practices. They sought out other gods. They had this king named Manasseh. Everyone say Manasseh. And he was the most vile king in their history. He sought to honor other gods. He did what was described as detestable in the eyes of the Lord. And Manasseh, what he did was he took the temple. He took the very temple of God. He set up carved images. They built pagan altars there. He sacrificed his own son on the fire of that altar. Who thinks this guy's pretty detestable? They practiced sorcery, divination, consulted with mediums and psychics. Listen to what it says in 2 Kings 21.16. It said, Manasseh also murdered many innocent people until Jerusalem was filled from one end to the other with innocent blood. This was in addition to the sin that he caused the people of Judah to commit, leading them to do evil in the Lord's sight. And here, now, so, so now Manasseh dies, and his son Amon becomes king and rises up. And in 2 Kings 21, 20 through 22, it talks about Amon. It says, he did what was evil. Everyone say evil. He did what was evil in the Lord's sight, just as his father Manasseh had done. He followed the example of his father. Worshiping the same idols his father had worshipped, he abandoned the Lord, the God of his ancestors, and he refused to follow the Lord's ways. Eventually, Amon, he he was conspired against and he was assassinated. And then all of the sudden, this guy's assassinated. All of the sudden, his eight-year-old son is made king. Think about that for a moment. Don't know if anyone's seen the old Disney movie, The Sword and the Stone, about King Arthur. There he was, about the age of 13, and he's made king. And I think about being in that position at that age and the awkwardness that that must have felt like. Think about this at eight years old. You don't have time to be a kid anymore. All of a sudden, you have all these advisors that you had to trust and and try and make good decisions in what was, we're reading, a very complicated childhood. You just had the most two vile, evil kings in the history of the nation of Israel. What his father and grandfather did was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And now all of a sudden you have this eight-year-old kid calling the shots. So let's read, starting at 2 Kings 22 1 through 22. We're just going to read two verses here and then we're going to move on immediately to chapter 23. It says, Josiah was eight years old when he became king. He reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. His mother was Jedidah, the daughter of Adiah from Bozkath. He did what was pleasing in the Lord's sight, 
and followed the example of his ancestor David. He did not turn away from doing what was right. Amazing turn of events, isn't it? Now let's read 2 Kings 23, 1 through 4. Let's read about what Josiah did. It says, Then the king summoned all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. And the king went up to the temple of the Lord with, with the people of Judah and Jerusalem, along with the priests and the prophets, and all the people from the least to the greatest. There the king read them the entire book of the covenant that had been found in the Lord's temple. The king took his place of authority beside the pillar and renewed the covenant in the Lord's presence. He pledged to obey the Lord by keeping all his commands, laws, and decrees with all his heart and soul. In this way, he confirmed all the terms of the covenant that were written in the scroll, and all the people pledged themselves to the covenant. Then the king instructed Hilkiah, the high priest, and the priests of the second rank, and the temple gatekeepers, to remove the Lord's temple of all articles that were used to worship Baal, Asherah, and all the powers of heaven. The king had all these things burned outside Jerusalem on the terraces of the Kidron Valley, and he carried the ashes away to Bethel. Skip down to verse 24 and 25. Says Josiah also got rid of all the mediums and psychics, the household gods, the idols, and every other kind of detestable practice, both in Jerusalem and throughout the land of Judah. He did this in obedience to the laws written in the scroll that Hilkiah the priest had found in the Lord's temple. Never before had there been a king like Josiah who turned to the Lord with all his heart and soul and strength, obeying all the laws of Moses. And there has never been a king like him since. Let's pray. Father God, we have a lot to learn from a young eight-year-old. God, I ask that, Lord, you will stir the hearts of the people here. God, not only will we be tied emotionally to what you are saying, but Lord, with reasoning and understanding of your word, may we make divine choices today. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, Josiah had a big job. He had a big job. And leave it to God to use an eight-year-old. Actually, he was 13 when he started doing all these things. Lead, lead it to a 13-year-old to start making these decisions. And what we see he starts doing is he reads God's word, responds to it, and starts removing idols. Everyone say, remove idols. Today, what we're going to be doing is talking about removing idols, and I want to talk about three steps to removing idols in your life. The first is, know what the Word of God says. You know, the results of them reading what the Word of God says were that they were to obey and honor God. And so it started by Josiah reading the book of the covenant. And then once he read the book of the covenant, there was an order that followed that he knew would require him to remove everything detestable in the land. And so I'm going to try and rifle through these really quickly because I skipped over them in Scripture. Listen to the different orders he made in the nation and what it required him to do. His first order, remove all articles of worship to Baal, Asherah, and the powers of the heavens. Number two, he did away with the idolatrous priests. Number three, he removed the Asherah pole and burned it, threw the dust from it over the graves of the people. Number, no, number four, he tore down the living quarters of the shrine. Listen to this. 
the shrine prostitutes of the temple. They had living quarters right there at the temple. Number five, destroyed the pagan shrines where sacrifices were offered in the temple at the gates of the city. Order number six, defiled the altar in the valley of Topeth so the people could no longer sacrifice their children to Molech. I want to cover a side note real quick. Something that maybe you should hear. You're hearing all this stuff and you're thinking, boy, it was weird times back then. Do you know they're still doing this today? It's just spoken of differently. It's talked about different. And I'm not going to say the name right now, but there is even a well-known politician that said something in private about sacrificing to Moloch, and it got out. And these things aren't said in jest. It's not tongue-in-cheek. They are serious. And yet we follow these people. Interesting. Order number seven. Tore down the altars at the palace, destroyed shrines in Jerusalem where King Solomon had built shrines to other gods. You hear about King Solomon as the wisest guy in all the Bible, right? But this guy, at the end of his life, he welcomed other gods into the temple. The same guy who built the temple. Order number eight. He tore down the altar at Bethel. He saw several tombs on the hill, took the human bones from the, listen to this. He, he saw a cemetery, uh, this tomb on the hill. He took the human bones from there and burned them on the altars to desecrate them. Order number nine. He demolished buildings at the pagan shrines in Samaria. He executed the pagan priests on the shrines on their own altars and burned their human bones on them. Josiah was dedicated to completely ridding the land of idolatry. So much so that, that those who were dead, he resurrected their bones. He, he took their bones right out of the tombs, right out of the graves, and he's like, you know what? These men, these, these former leaders of our nation, they are responsible for us getting to where we've been. So what we're going to do, we're going to completely rid our land of them. We're going to take their bones, we're going to burn them right on the altars because we want no semblance of this in our nation. Something interesting. This was prophesied about 350 years before he did it. This was prophesied to a very wicked king named Jeroboam in 1 Kings 13.2. Listen to this. Then at the Lord's command, he shouted, O altar, altar, this is what the Lord says. This was a prophet who went to Jeroboam. A child named Josiah will be born in the dynasty of David on you. He will sacrifice the priests from the pagan shrines who come here to burn incense, and human bones will be burned on you. I want you to think about Josiah for a minute. He was not raised in an environment to know the laws of God or the covenant. He had to read it. He had to learn it. And then he had to respond to it. In the previous chapter, something that we didn't uh, discuss, there was a priest named Hilkiah. He's the one that discovered God's laws in the temple. He learned it, and then he introduced it to the king, and it was, hey, read this for yourself. So the king didn't only just take the priest at his word. He read it, and then what he did was he assembled all the other priests and the prophets, and he said, you need to listen to this, and he read it to them. Are you guys hearing me? These prophets and priests he gathered, you might have your opinion of them. They were not God-honoring people. That was just their title. 
These were men that had compromised God's law. They had learned from others who had compromised God's law. So it wasn't just a command from the king, hey, we all need to do this. He said, no, 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 no. You need to learn what it says. You need to learn what it says. I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond the way I want to respond. So what Josiah did was he intimately sought out, God, what's your instruction? Church, I want you to let this be your guide today. To discipline yourself to know what God's word says and what it is asking of you. Okay? We need to know how to honor and obey God. We also need to know what brings him dishonor. Amen? Are you hearing me? I don't want it to get too quiet in here today. I can't let you fall asleep either. Listen to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. It says, all Scripture, everyone say all Scripture. All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true. Everyone say true. And to make us realize what is wrong. Everyone say wrong. In our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. You want to do good work? Learn what is wrong with you first. Don't allow yourself, I want you to hear me out. Don't allow yourself to gravitate toward things that sound or feel good. There are false teachers and prophets that what they do is they use deception to take the word of God and they twist it into something else entirely different. Listen to this warning. 2 Peter 2, 1 through 3. But there were also false prophets in Israel, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will cleverly teach destructive heresies and even deny the master who bought them. In this way, they will bring sudden destruction on themselves. Many will follow their evil teaching and shameful immorality. And because of these teachers, the way of truth will be slandered. In their greed, they will make up clever lies to get a hold of your money. But God condemned them long ago, and their destruction will not be delayed. Church, what this teaches us is, we need to learn the truth. Because if Josiah has taught us anything today, there were priests that had lost their way. And what they did... They said, we need to commit to knowing God's law. And so that brings us to point two. Step two. We need to evaluate how to obey God's word. One of those things, and we're going to talk about this more in depth, is there is the physical action of obedience. Now, we have already gone over everything Josiah destroyed, with which each thing that Josiah removed, it displayed his obedience to God's law. But you saw there was this systematic order to how Josiah did things. And so what we can assume, it is safe to assume, that he, Josiah, he read God's law, was convicted by what was taking place in his nation, and then he started to remove everything. Now, I want to say, it is one thing to decide, I'm going to remove something evil in my life. This young man was assuming the responsibility of a nation, right? He realized even at a young age, I am in authority over all this, and I have a responsibility. And the people in that nation, they were regularly making sacrifices to these idols, sacrificing their children, their animals, their food, their offerings, etc. 
They were pledging their lives to these false gods, and they were raising their children to follow them too. That was the act of the people. In fact, it states in verse 3 of 2 Kings 23, the king took his place of authority. He took his place. I want to turn this on you for a moment. Some of you have been given authority and responsibility over things. Come on. You've been given authority and responsibility. Maybe it's your homes. Maybe it's your business. Perhaps you are the patriarch or matriarch of an entire family. In my case, I have been given authority over this church. And those who are given authority over organizations, cities, states, and nations have a responsibility for what goes on under their authority. Are you hearing me? And this authority shouldn't be taken lightly. And we should not let those who have been placed under our authority to just have free reign and do whatever they want. Come on now. Parents, your kid turns 16 and you're like, ah, oh, they don't want to come to church anymore. I'm not going to force them. You have authority over their lives. What are you doing? Seriously, and I know I'm stepping on toes this morning, but I want you to hear me out. We have to recognize that we have been put in a place of authority, and whatever we permit in our house is a part of us. And you can say, no, I can distance myself from that. I can dedicate myself to church. I can do this. I can do that. And if you are allowing it, it is affecting you. Come on. Listen to Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your spiritual leaders and do what they say. Their work is to watch over your souls. You have been placed authority in your own household. Those who are underneath you, your work is to watch over their souls. And they are accountable to God. Those leaders, give them reason to do this with joy and not with sorrow. That would certainly not be for your benefit. This not only, check this out, this is so critical. This not only speaks to spiritual authorities such as pastors, mentors, and teachers, but the spiritual authority of your family. Joshua, the man who led the Hebrews into Canaan, after witnessing a nation who was no longer really following his leadership, they were, they were going out and they were doing their own things. Joshua in 24.15 is still like one of his last final things in any semblance of authority he had left in his old age. He said, choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And then let me tell you what happened. People responded to that. They heard what he was saying. They said, okay, we got to remove this. We got to remove this. We got to change our habits. We got to change things that are taking place, what we have allowed. And so, church, what I want you to do is I want you to recognize what you have been given authority over. And choose not to permit anything under your authority that dishonors God. Are you hearing me? Some people don't like this message. Those things aren't easy. But to be obedient means completely removing things that causes you to be disobedient. Church, we've made grace too easy. I was talking with someone a while back, and I pointed out something very specific that is an issue in their life. And they immediately dismissed it and said, well, actually, I think this is a bigger issue that I need to work on first. Didn't even hear what I was saying. I'm like, I don't have authority over this person's life. They have chosen to step away from that authority. We have to Stay away from anything 
that presents itself as spiritual that does not acknowledge Jesus Christ or it's confirmed by God's word. Josiah was looking around and there were mediums, there were psychics, there were tarot card readings, there were people who worshiped astrology. And church, I won't deny that there is a power behind it. But anything that has a spiritual power to it only comes from two places. It only comes from two places. It either comes from the throne of God that will always testify to the work of Jesus Christ, or it comes from Satan and his demonic horde who will use every deceptive tool he can to lure the people of God for eternity's sake. You might not realize this, but it is Satan's desire to be worshipped. There are people who choose to worship him directly. But most are deceived through other means in often what times seems very innocent. But I, choose you to do, I challenge you to do this on your own time. Turn to Isaiah chapter 14 at some point and read the five I wills of Satan where he has a commitment to lure you. God's word is clear. In living our lives, we need to be in complete submission to him. And so as stated before, in our households, we should have our own house rules and we should have expectations for our children and how to live. Church, I'm telling you, God is no different. He has expectations on how his children ought to live. We should have the same thing. In fact, Jesus tells us it is impossible. Everyone say impossible. It is impossible to serve both God and man or any other gods. Matthew 6, 24, he says, No one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. And you can take that word money and you can substitute anything else there. To get to know God and become more like him, it requires us to change and consecrate ourselves, setting ourselves apart from the world. Church, I want to talk about relating to this odd time in the Old Testament where they had idols and other gods present in the temple. And so often it is easy for us to look around and say, Pastor, we don't have anything that looks like the Old Testament back then. People sacrificing their children to other gods? Some people are sacrificing their children today and their children are still living, but they're sentenced to death by the way they live. Some people are really sacrificing their children. Don't you find it? It's more than a coincidence that satanic leaders known satanic leaders work at abortion clinics. What do you think goes on after hours? It sounds crazy, but it's true. Look it up for yourself. This is absolutely happening in our nation. And here is the thing, church. There are semblances of the past that are still taking place today, but we ourselves... We allow other gods into our house. We just don't realize that's what it is. It's about going back to Matthew 6, 24. It's about what you are serving. That's what can make it a God. What am I serving? Just because it doesn't seem universally sinful doesn't mean that God won't ask you to surrender it. We've referenced the story of the rich young ruler. 
the rich young ruler, he was, he was very wealthy, and he, he goes up to Jesus and he says, okay, what must I do, or basically, how much is it going to cost me to inherit the kingdom of God? I, I want to share in that eternity. I want to share in that kingdom. And Jesus, having this young man right in front of him, knowing the heart of the question, he stated, if you want to inherit the kingdom of God, sell all your possessions and follow me. And you can hear that story, and I get it all the time. Well, pastor, it's, it's not a sin. God can bless and give me money. And I say, absolutely, he can. He can. But he looked at this young man and knew what he served. And so we can say those things in and of itself, they aren't inherently sinful, but because you could say, Pastor, I can use this as a tool to minister the gospel. But here's the thing. Our heart's attitude towards those things can place a barrier between us and God. Are you hearing me, church? I've heard from many people that their plan is to become millionaires and then do a lot of work for the kingdom of God. And I said, you know what? To me, that sounds pretty destructive, actually. Because we can have good intentions. You hearing me, church? We can have very good intentions with what we'll do. But can you be open to giving up everything in your life? Can you be open to just letting go of anything that God would require you to? Hear me out. It could be television. It could be a sport. Maybe vehicles. Or maybe God is calling you to leave your career. He is saying, I have purpose in your life. Trust me. Follow me. And I know hearing this, it seems like a radical way of thinking, but have we, and when I, when I say we, I'm talking about the royal we now, I'm talking about ourselves, have we created barriers or things in our life that is off limits to God? God, I'm willing to give you so much, but that, that thing, that's, that's mine. It's innocent, right? It's innocent. It's not hurting anybody. It's not harmful. God's word doesn't specifically say that's a sin. But is that thing too important to give up for the sake of God? There's only one way to figure that out. Evaluate our lives. Church, if you want to walk in obedience to God, you must be open to self-examination and revelation from the Holy Spirit so that your life can be aligned with God. But the Spirit of God, check this out. This is what I really want you to grasp today. The Spirit of God might ask you to go even further in your depth of relationship by distancing yourself from worldly things. Come on, are you hearing me now? I, I don't want you to get quiet. I don't want you to drift off because here are the easy places to start in evaluation. And you might want to write these three questions down. I don't have them up on the screen. What brings dishonor to God? That's the best place to start. What in my life brings dishonor to God? Second, what distracts me from the things of God? Third, this is going to step on some toes. What do I do that distracts others from the things of God? You can say, it's, it's not a sin in my life. It's not an issue. But by me doing that thing, I'm causing others to stumble. Maybe the ones I'm in authority over. I want you to think about the disciples for just a moment. Three of the disciples, they were, they were fishermen. But when Jesus went to them, they dropped their nets. It says they dropped their nets. That means that they intended to choose purpose in Christ and follow him, right? 
So here's these disciples following Jesus. Jesus dies on the cross. He rose from the grave. He appeared to them twice, but he wasn't with them all 40 days after he rose from the grave. But he appeared to them twice, and he revealed himself at a very important time, but yet Peter was still stuck in this weird place because he had been walking with Jesus daily, and now he no longer is. And Scripture is very clear. It says, Peter returned to fishing. And this wasn't Peter decided, hey, I want to go have some fun this afternoon. Let's, let's grab our nets. Let's go fishing. This was Peter deliberately making a choice. I am going to return to my trade. Okay? That's the decision he made in his heart. Now here's the thing about that. That was not the calling of the Lord on Peter's life. So Jesus sees Peter doing this, and Jesus approaches on the shore. And he challenges Peter in a way that changes his approach to his call and purpose for the rest of his life. And I want you to hear this. I get emotional just reading this scripture. After breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter. Jesus had just told Peter they weren't catching anything. He said, cast your net on the other side of the boat. And next thing you know, they couldn't even contain all the fish that were in the net. So they go to shore, and Jesus is preparing breakfast, and it says, after Jesus asks Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Now I want you to think about the last mentioned interaction between Jesus and Peter. The la last mentioned interaction between Jesus and Peter was Jesus telling Peter, you'll deny me three times. Now Jesus is standing before him, revealed himself for the third time after he rose from the from the grave. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied, you know I love you. Then feed my lambs. Jesus told him. Then Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said, you know I love you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. A third time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question a third time. He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, then feed my sheep. I tell you the truth. When you were young, you were able to do as you liked. You dressed yourself and you went wherever you wanted to go. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and others will dress you and take you where you don't want to go. Jesus said this to let him know by what kind of death he would glorify God. And Jesus told him, follow me. Church. Jesus is saying, follow me. Don't follow what you know, what you think you know. Commit to me. This commitment to the Lord. It, guys, it seems radical, but honestly, if something gets in the way of our calling and purpose in the Lord, then, then understand that we are at risk, not only to those who we minister to, but our own soul. There is so much on the table. And so evaluating ourselves, evaluation comes from a pure heart of desiring to be like Christ. So if Jesus Christ is your aim and we are grasping his love, then we need to be open to examination and that should be easy. That should be our heart's desire. And it is desirable to honor the Lord. Come on. Third step to removing idols, and this is the most important. Acting on conviction. This seems like the step where church people especially, they hear this message and they're like, you know what, pastor, I agree exactly with what you're saying. And it seems like they get all the way up to this step and it's like, nope, nope, can't, can't do it. 
Because we say, God, I, I hear you. I know what you, want me to do, what, what you want me to do. I feel it in my heart. You might come to me and say, Pastor, I heard your message. I even, I told my accountability partner, hey, I, I'm, I'm going to do this. You might go home. You might tell your spouse. You might even come up to me and say, Pastor, I was challenged by that, and I'm going to give up this. But then you walk away. You walk away from conviction. And you realize you have a little bit too much of a hold on that thing. Come on. Or as time elapses from the moment of conviction to the moment of necessary action, we allow ourselves to reason not removing these things from our life. You guys have known because I've openly talked about it. I have a dog named Wrigley. Wrigley, we got him eight and a half years ago. And uh, him and I, we had a mutual respect to stay away from each other. Now, Wrigley did love me because oftentimes, because the dog was the gassiest thing on the face of the earth, and what, what he would do was he'd come over and, and lay right by me. I, my, my spot is on the couch. And if, if head hits pillow on the couch, I'm going out. I, it's just it's what happens. But Wrigley, being gassy, laying right by me, I think he was put in my life to torment me. Right? And I'd, I'd, I'd look at this dog and I'd think, man, I cannot wait for the day that you go to doggy heaven. I cannot wait for that day. Yesterday was that day. We saw him struggling with his health and we made the decision that week. Last, this last week, we said, you know what? He's, he's not doing good. Barely breathing, can't eat or drink. When he gets up, he can only walk about 10 feet. But then yesterday, we go to the vet. I had to, I had to carry him in. I put him down, and I'm sitting there thinking, God, if there, is there anything we can do? Is there anything we can do that we can just take him back home? You know, even if it's a few months, that'd be great. And I thought that because this moment is too hard. It's too hard. But church, I want you to hear me out. I want to bring this home. Following through on our convictions is always difficult. It's always difficult. It's not easy. Doing the right thing is not always going to sit well. And so it might cause you to end relationships. It might cause you to decide, men, you especially, I don't, I don't even have it on me, but that, that handheld device that you have, that tool that might be used as, as a, a weapon in your own life to, to lust, to look at pornography, you know what? You're better off without it. You're better off without these things. And you can use all the reasoning in the world you want on why you can't get rid of it. But Jesus teaches us in Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount that if something is causing you to sin, you are better, even if it's a body part, you're better off removing it from your life because you do not understand the ramifications of giving into sin and what that means for eternity's sake. Are you hearing me about how desperate this is? So you might say, Pastor, this is a radical message. I serve a radical God that calls for your full commitment. I don't want a church that is completely full of people that are going to hell. I'd rather have just a few of us and we all know we're going to heaven. And so, yeah, I'm being truth truthful here today. But if we truly are serious about this, then you need to seize the opportunity to act on conviction, to not allow it to take root in your life. You have to let go. 
Then there's when the Holy Spirit convicts you for his purpose. I spoke to this a moment ago. Do you know not all conviction is about sin? It can be about calling. It can be about God's purpose in your life. And when the Holy Spirit convicts you into something, don't let anything sway you from it. Are you hearing me? Don't let anything sway you from it. It might not just be the world that tries to sway you. It might be a fellow believer in Christ. Where God speaks purpose into your life and all of a sudden they're like, you know, I don't, I don't think that's a good idea. Jesus, he was walking with the disciples and he predicted his death. Peter heard all this and he said, I will not allow that to happen to you. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. And I know you hear that and it seems harsh. But what Jesus was doing, he was sp speaking out of his commitment and his conviction to what the Father had called him to. And he would not be swayed in that. Jesus Christ, he was committed, committed to purpose, and he was without sin. Your commitment to purpose will also lead you out of sin. Think about it. And when you act on conviction, church, blessings do follow you. But here's the thing. So does more conviction. You hear this, you're like, Pastor, I don't, I don't know if I want to go down that road. But, but listen, I believe the moment that we take that step, that step of action and conviction, God says, okay, now I have you. Now I have your attention. And I'm molding you into my image. So then I'm going to allow my Holy Spirit to convict you about this other thing. And slowly, but surely, you are being molded into the very image of God. Church, I believe rewards await the obedient. And God wants to bless children of obedience, but here's the thing that we need to accept. We are not finished products. And we never will be. So the moment that you step in to acting on conviction, God's going to say, now, now I have them. Now I can work. And that's when the blessings come. Because when you realize conviction is not God fighting against you, that's God fighting for you. When you realize that this is God as an advocate in your life, he's not doing it to tear you down. He's doing it to lift you up, to build you. You say, I love conviction. I love it. Because it's making me into him. It's making me more and more like him. So church, choose you this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Who are you going to serve? I want you to bow your heads. And if you want to respond to this message, it takes you saying, God, I am open. Evaluate me. Evaluate my heart my condition. And perhaps the Holy Spirit is already doing that, and I believe that that's often the way the Holy Spirit works. 
but you're hearing this and you're like, I want this intimate relationship with the Lord. I need to walk with Him closely. And the only way I am going to do that is by removing these things from my life. And I need to acknowledge it right now. Because I want to grow close with the Lord. If that's you and you say, Pastor, I need to make a firm commitment today. A firm commitment to remove this thing. I'm asking you to stand. Stand before me, stand before God, and say, I am pledging. This is a commitment to the Lord. I've got things I need to remove. If that's you, would you stand with me? Praise God. Praise God. I want you to hear me out like King Josiah did. You are making a decision to be children of obedience. Children of obedience. Are you hearing me? Those of you standing, this is a good thing, not a bad thing. This is you saying, Lord, I'm yours. And it is about God loves you. That's why his spirit is working on you. And although it hurts at times, I tell you, the moment you learn to act on it, all that pain, all that anguish, all of it is gone. So what I want to do is I want to invite our prayer altar team forward. And if you're standing, what I encourage you to do is I encourage you to step out with boldness. Seek a prayer advocate. Make confession on what you're committing to. Just say, I want you to pray that I'm committed to this and I see it through. And those things are good for our lives. So here, our, our prayer altar team is coming. And I encourage you as Kelton sings, and the rest of you, you know, I, I encourage you to stand and worship. But if you responded to that altar call, I want you to just come and share and say, pray with me. Be my advocate in this. Be my accountability. Let's turn these things over to the Lord.